Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bizzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Muhammad Khalil about his new book, Islam and the Fate of Others, The Salvation Question, published by Oxford University Press in 2012. In Islam and the Fate of Others, Muhammad Hassan Khalil masterfully approaches a difficult topic, what happens to non-Muslims when they die? Who is accountable for accepting Muhammad's prophethood? Could any sane person possibly reject the truth were it clearly revealed to him or her? In order to address these questions and others, Khalil probes some of the most prominent pre-modern and modern voices in Islamic history. The author unearths not a monolithic consensus, but instead a cacophony of opinions concerning soteriological matters, which overwhelmingly envisions a heaven filled with Muslims and non-Muslims. As an added bonus to Khalil's robust and provocative study, his adroit prose reads smoothly and his storytelling is exquisite. That combined with meticulous attention to transliteration and precise, fluid translations, Muhammad Khalil's monograph is an absolute pleasure to read and should appeal to specialists and non-specialists alike. During our interview, we discuss how Muslim views of the afterlife often surprise readers, how Muslim scholars have understood personal accountability in terms of receiving a divine message, and how translation plays a vital role in portraying complex theological concepts. I hope you enjoy the interview, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Muhammad Khalil. Hi, Muhammad. Hello, Elliot. Thank you so much for joining us today and talking about your book, Islam and the Fate of Others, The Salvation Question. I really enjoyed reading it, and I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. Do you think first you could tell us a little bit about your academic background and how you became interested in the topic? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so I uh, was a student at the University of Michigan uh, as an undergraduate student majoring in Arabic and Islamic studies, although what I really wanted to do was to go into dentistry. And, and the reason I wanted to go into dentistry is because my orthodontist convinced me he was making approximately $3 million a year, and I decided that's what I want to do. Huh. Uh, and so I, uh, I, I, I completed all of my pre-dental uh, requirements, and then I, uh, but I majored in Arabic and Islamic studies. Well, during the process, it became very very clear to me that I really was not interested in dentistry. I was just interested in the money. That's, of course, not a good reason to go into any field. Uh, and by the time, you know, by my junior year, um, I, uh, that was when I enrolled in a course taught by Professor Sherman Jackson. Uh, it was just an introduction to Islam. And uh, it was the only course I took with Professor Jackson as an undergrad, and uh, I actually was very uh, moved by it. It really touched me, and it, it uh, changed my outlook about Islamic studies. And um, but in any case, for various reasons, I proceeded with my plan, and I actually went into dental school, spent uh, almost two years in dental school. And each semester, I was planning my escape to Islamic studies. Finally, during the second semester of my second year, I had the courage to leave dental school, uh, of course, uh, bringing with me a lot of debt. And uh, I uh, was accepted into the uh, master's program at the University of Michigan. I uh, then continued uh, uh, studying with Professor Jackson and Professor Michael Bonner and uh, uh, Professor Raji Ramuni and others. And uh, when it was time to uh, determine my dissertation topic, I was initially thinking about various topics that I thought 
would interest my fellow academics. So, for example, I was thinking about um, writing on uh, Maturidi ethics, which, of course, is an interesting topic. But I wanted a topic that I personally found compelling and, and uh, as a historian, found to be um, un unusually interesting. And the topic of non-Muslim salvation and the fate of hell and the uh, how Muslim scholars think about God, I found those to be much more compelling. And um, given that, given my experience with dental, with, you know, having left dental school, um, I, I sort of adopted this this mentality that I really should just do what I find to be genuinely interesting, um, or most interesting, put it that way. So. Um, you know, I I, uh, I presented the topic to my uh, to my advisor, Professor Jackson, and he he accepted it. He thought it was fine, uh, and um, it was uh, smooth sailing from there. Great. So, you also have some other publications that are related to this monograph. Could you tell us a little yeah. bit about those and how they relate? Yeah. So, um, so the the book Islam and the Fate of Others is uh, derived from my dissertation, although I spent. Um, approximately twice the time working on the book as I did on the dissertation. So I was actually very proud of, the, proud of the book, not so much of the dissertation. But along the way, I worked on related projects. So when I was at the University of Illinois as an assistant professor, um, I uh, organized a conference, of course, with the help of many, many colleagues uh, and, and others. And the conference was called Islam, Salvation, and the Fate of Others. And we were very fortunate to have some very prominent scholars representing a wide variety of views uh, attend this conference. And um, from that, we were able to produce an edited volume. And that was published just a few months ago. And the title of that is Between Heaven and Hell, Islam, Salvation, and the Fate of Others, uh, also published by Oxford. So um, in many ways, it's a continuation of the discussions that I present in my book, Islam and the Fate of Others. Great. Thanks for, thanks for telling us about that. Uh, so one thing I noticed about reading this book is that it's something that you know will appeal to a broad audience. I think maybe something like Maturidi Ethics, maybe it would be harder to sell that to a larger audience. So I was wondering, have you had any memorable sort of airplane conversations about your book where you've been traveling and someone says, oh, so what do you do? And then you have an opportunity to tell them about this topic. Oh, absolutely. Um, and as you say, it's a topic that uh, many find interesting, many find compelling. And <clears throat> it's, uh, I can't even begin to, uh, to count the number of conversations I've had about this with, you know, non-specialists. And, um, and, you know, the thing about the book is that it covers uh, three very significant topics. The first is um, looking at how Muslim scholars think about the fate of non-Muslims, you know, can they be saved? Can they go to? Can they reach paradise? That's an important question. It also addresses the question of, well, you know, is hell everlasting? Is punishment? Is damnation everlasting? Can uh, all of humanity be saved? And that's, of course, a, a, a significant question, one that often comes up in discussions of philosophy of religion. And the third uh, major question is, well, what's the nature of God? Is, is the God of Islam a God of 
um, wrath, a God of justice, a God of mercy? What exactly is the nature of God? So these are three very significant topics, um, and and they're topics that are on a lot of people's minds, be they Muslim or non-Muslim. Sure. So w- one of the things that I noticed about the book as well is that you know, oftentimes when people think about religion, their sort of knee-jerk reaction is that religions are very exclusivistic. And mm-hmm. oftentimes, you know, from teaching undergraduate courses, people automatically assume that a main tenet of all religions is that, you know, if you're not in that religion, you go to hell. So do you think that this book would surprise your audience, whether they're specialists or non-specialists? Are there particular sort of theses in the book that you think your audience members find particularly surprising? I think so, um, primarily because of my own experiences. Uh, growing up, many of my teachers conveyed to me the idea that Islam is indeed an exclusivist tradition. Uh, so I remember growing up thinking that non-Muslims, all non-Muslims are going to hell and they will remain in hell forever. That's what I was taught growing up by many of my teachers. So um, for me, much of the book was actually quite a surprise. Hmm. Uh, And this discovery began when I read Sherman Jackson's book uh, on the boundaries of theological tolerance in Islam, um, a uh, translation of a treatise by a medieval, very well-known, very popular uh, medieval theologian named Al-Ghazali. In fact, uh, some have maintained that he uh, could very well be the most influential theologian in the history of Islam. And um, in this treatise that uh, Professor Jackson had translated, there was a brief mention of the fate of non-Muslims. And in that passage, Al-Ghazali states that most of humanity will be saved and that, in fact, many non-Muslims will also be saved. This, for me, was, was surprising, especially that this was coming from a medieval Muslim theologian and not a modern, you know, modern Muslim thinker. Um, and so that was the first time I, I began to question uh, what I was ta- what I had been in, what I was taught growing up. Um, and I began to wonder, well, maybe I was told what I was told was incorrect all these years. And then when I was reading a, um, a, a an edited volume by F, Professor F.E. Peters, uh, a, a reader on classical Islam. There was a section there uh, where the medieval Muslim theologian Al-Zamakhshari, a Mu'tazilite thinker, was uh, addressing the question of you know, whether hell is everlasting uh, or, or whether it will come to an end. And what was interesting about that was that he was actually addressing the question at all. I was always taught that hell is everlasting, and that's the end of the discussion. Uh, believers will be saved eventually, but uh, hell is certainly everlasting. That's what I was taught. So to see this, um, this medieval Muslim theologian um, responding to others who held, who, maintained, who held a different view, that was surprising to me. And he was even quoting reports ascribed to companions of the Prophet and, and you know, early Muslims who uh, spoke of hell becoming uh, desolate. So that was, a, that was a shock. And then as I began to investigate, I discovered that, of all people, the theologian Ibn Taymiyyah was of the view that hell would indeed come to an end and that all of humanity would be saved 
And just to give some background, Ibn Taymiyyah has a reputation of being a fairly conservative scholar, and some would even say uh, an inspiration to uh, fundamentalists. And you know, these these kinds of claims can be a bit um, problematic. But in any case, um, one doesn't really think of Ibn Taymiyyah as this sort of universalist figure, uh, someone who who maintained that all of humanity, even you know, Pharaoh, uh, uh, unbelievers, could one day walk in paradise. Yeah, so this, this, is, this is really interesting. I was going to ask you another question about Ibn Taymiyyah, which we'll come to in a moment. But since, since you've already mentioned Al-Ghazali and Ibn Taymiyyah, as well as Zamakhshari, do you want to tell us about the other two primary figures that you focused on and how these yeah. four figures that you write your chapters about uh, came, came to be in terms of your focus and why they're particularly important? Yeah, so, you know, discovering Al-Ghazali's view on salvation, discovering Ibn Taymiyyah's view on hell, um, these were quite fascinating. And I realized I, that these are two figures I would like to focus on in my, in my research. Um, but I also found two other figures that I found to be interesting. Um, and the first is Ibn al-Arabi, uh, the famous Sufi thinker. And um, I was fascinated by his discussions of the salvation of others, I noticed that other scholars had already had already um, had written about him to some extent. Uh, for example, Professor William Chittick and others. And um, what I what I read about him was quite fascinating. And then the the fourth and final figure was a modern figure, and that was Muhammad Rashid Rida, someone who is a well known student of another well known modern scholar, Muhammad Abdul. And um, these are four extremely influential scholars in their own ways, especially the three medieval ones. But even Rashid Rida, in many ways, is extremely influential. And so these are uh, four scholars who um, had some very interesting views on this question. And they're also four extremely and unusually influential scholars. Uh, and, you know, I, one thing I make very clear in the book is that, you know, this is not meant to be the final discussion, you know, this is not meant to be the, 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 a comprehensive study. Um, if you, for example, the four scholars I select, they're all Sunnis, for example. And it would have been ideal if I had included Shiite thinkers uh, as my primary focus. I do look at some sort of, you know, along the way, right. but I don't right. focus on any. And, I, you know, looking back at it, obviously it would have been ideal if I had, and I I think for a more comprehensive study, that would be that would be the way to go, obviously. Um, but in any case, those are the four that I selected, and um, you know, they each I found them to be very compelling in their own ways. Um, you know, all four of them main in their own way maintain a a kind of optimistic view of the afterlife, not necessarily on the day of judgment, although some do, but ultimately, ultimately, all four maintain that at least the overwhelming majority of humanity will be saved. So on, on that note, could you maybe say something about a few of the ideas that distinguish each thinker from one another and also some of the ideas that overlap that they share in common? Absolutely. Um, so Al-Ghazali, let's start with him. Uh, he dies in 1111 of the Common Era. Uh, he was of the view that most of humanity will be saved. He had an optimistic view. And, of course, I have to stress that this is, I have to clarify, 
that we're talking here about ultimate salvation. He's not necessarily saying that when every, when, when people die, they'll all you know that most of them will go directly to heaven. No, he has this idea that you know many will go through struggles along the way. The day of judgment will be a difficult day for many, and so on. But for him, most of humanity will be saved. And he talks about how um, he talks about the, the the non-Muslims who will be saved. And he says that non-Muslims who have never heard of the revelation will be saved. And that, by the way, was historically a dominant view among Muslim theologians, that at the very least, non-Muslims who never heard of Islam, they would be saved. Um, and so one point that I make in the book is that we really cannot say that most Muslim theologians historically were exclusivists. Um, they were what I would call, uh, and what others would call, inclusivists. Uh, not pluralists, but inclusivists. So let me define these terms. Exclusivists maintain that only Muslims could ever be saved. And that's what I was taught growing up by many of my teachers. Inclusivists maintain that Islam is the, the primary path to heaven, but God will save sincere non-Muslims who could not have been, who, who could not have been expected to recognize uh, Islam as, the, as such, as the primary path to heaven. And then you have pluralists. Pluralists maintain that there are multiple paths that are equally salvific. So historically, it's quite hard to find a, an obvious, indisputable example of a pre-modern Muslim exclusivist. It's also hard to find an example of a pre-modern Muslim pluralist. In modern times, you can find many of both. But in, but in pre-modern times, it seems that inclusivism dominates. And in fact, I would even hazard that today, inclusivism dominates. But there are, of course, different forms of inclusivism. So for some people, it's simply, you know, if you've never heard of the revelation, if you've never encountered the revelation, only those non-Muslims would be saved. Others go a step further. Al-Ghazali goes a step further. So Al-Ghazali says non-Muslims who've never heard of the revelation, they would be saved. And non-Muslims who've heard only negative things about the Prophet would be saved, or excused, I should say. And then... Um, he goes on to add another category of non-Muslims who could be saved, and that's non-Muslims who have encountered the, the revelation in its true form, uh, as he imagines it, and who proceed to investigate it actively. Um, a group that I refer to as, uh, as sincere truth seekers. Now, he doesn't really say much more about this group, so we're, we're kind of left wondering what exactly he has in mind. But in any case, um, those are the non-Muslims, the, the examples of non-Muslims um, that he would consider saved or excused, uh, excused by God on the Day of Judgment. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and as I say, he, he believes that most of humanity will be saved and, and that only a small minority of people will remain in hell forever. And he says that just as it's rare today to see people... Um, hating their lives. People, it just says it's rare to see people who would desire to commit suicide. It will be rare in the afterlife to find people who will suffer. Um, and so for, he has this you know, fairly relatively optimistic view of the afterlife, a view that is in stark contrast to the view of some other Muslim theologians who maintain that uh, it's really only a small minority of people who will ultimately be saved. So that's Al-Ghazali, uh, in a nutshell. Yeah, great. Uh, 
Yeah. And then the next figure I look at is Ibn al-Arabi, who, uh, so this is how it's looking at it chronologically now. Next we have Ibn al-Arabi, thinker. And uh, his, um, his views are actually probably the most unique. Um, first of all, he maintains that non-Muslims who could not recognize the truth of Islam will be saved. Now, that's not especially, particularly unique, um, uh, especially when you look at modern Muslim thinkers, you'll find many Muslim thinkers who, may, who hold the same view. But what's really interesting about Ibn al-Arabi is his view regarding hell. He maintains that the people who are consigned to hell for everlasting damnation will eventually be relieved of the torment or of the, the pain of hell. And he maintains that they will begin to enjoy hell. Uh, and this actually, I should note that he's not the first to make this claim. Jahiz, another famous Muslim theologian, also had um, reportedly maintained uh, this, this position. But in any case, Ibn Arabi um, discusses this in, in writing. Uh, we have his own words on this issue. And he explicitly states that people in hell will begin to enjoy hell. Uh, they will experience what Professor William Chittick calls sweet torments. And uh, so that was quite interesting. Um, so for Ibn Arabi, uh, most of, all of humanity will ultimately be relieved of the of the pain, uh, of pain, of all forms of, of actual pain. Um, the third thinker was Ibn Taymiyyah, and uh, I've mentioned him before. When it comes to the issue of the salvation of non-Muslims, Ibn Taymiyyah was of the view that non-Muslims who have never encountered the message would be saved. They would be excused. But uh, beyond that, he doesn't really say much more about that. So that's really about as much as we can say about Ibn, Ibn Taymiyyah. He is what I would call a limited inclusivist. Um, then the interesting thing about him, of course, is his view on hell. And the very last treatise that he writes is a treatise that um, scholars today refer to as Fana'un-Nar, the annihilation of the fire. And in this treatise, he argues that most, that all of humanity, all of humanity will one day be saved. And this is actually the subject of much controversy. And if you were to go online today and look up this topic, you would, discuss, you would see many who adamantly deny that Ibn Taymiyyah could ever maintain such a position. But these denials appeared to be um, later denials. In other words, you don't really find his contemporaries um, refuting this idea. In fact, so on the one hand, you have a scholar like Al-Subki um, responding to Ibn Taymiyyah, rejecting his claim. And then you have his, Ibn Taymiyyah's student, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyyah, another well-known scholar, supporting Ibn Taymiyyah, quoting him, supporting him. And you see other students of Ibn Taymiyyah referencing this treatise, and never do you see a denial uh, so the denials come much later, centuries later, actually. And so um, it, it appears that indeed Ibn Taymiyyah was of the view that hell would eventually come to an end and that all of humanity would be saved. And how does he justify that? Well, he points to reports of the companions of the Prophet in which they state that, uh, precisely that, that all of humanity will, uh, will, all of the damned will be taken out of hell. 
And he also points to passages in the Quran that he considers um, as hints of this position. For example, uh, Surah 78, verse 23, which states that the transgressors will remain in hell for ages. Now, from Ibn Taymiyyah's perspective, um, it's curious here for someone to maintain that hell is everlasting when the Quran explicitly states that it will that the damned will remain in hell for ages. As for the term that's often defined as or translated as forever, that's a, that's the term abadan. And so, in most translations of the Quran, you see that the damned will remain in hell forever, and the word. Uh, that's translated there is Abadan. And Ibn Taymiyyah and his student Ibn al-Qayyim do, are not convinced by this argument. Um, and, and there's of course a lot more we can say about that, but for the sake of time we'll leave it at that. The fourth and final scholar is Rashid Rida. Uh, a, a scholar, and just to give you some background uh, about these scholars, Al-Ghazali is a Persian scholar, an Iranian scholar, essentially. Uh, uh, Ibn Arabi is from an Andalus, from Muslim Spain. Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah is, is, is a Syrian scholar, we'll say. Uh, and uh, Muhammad Rashid Rida comes from what we now call Lebanon, uh, the modern country of Lebanon. Uh, but he resides in Cairo, where he spends most of his time. And Rashid Rida is interesting because he essentially combines Al-Ghazali's inclusivism and optimism with Ibn Taymiyyah's view on hell. And Rashid Rida is much later than the other three figures, right? That's exactly right, yeah. So just to give you the death dates, Al-Ghazali dies in the 1111 of the Common Era. Ibn Arabi dies in 1240 of the Common Era. Ibn Taymiyyah passes away in 1328. And Rashid Rida passes away in 1935. So he's the one modern figure. And Rashid Rida, um, he adopts a more liberal, inclusivist view, um, much like Ibn Arabi, actually. So here's what's interesting about Rashid Rida, is that he cites Al-Ghazali's criterion for non-Muslim salvation. But when you begin to look at how he's describing the criterion, you discover that he's clearly modifying the criterion so that it really matches Ibn Arabi's view. In other words... Rashid Rida maintains that non-Muslims who do not recognize the truth of Islam will be saved, but, or at least will be excused. And Rida actually makes it a point to say that they will be excused on this point alone. They still could be judged for other, uh, other matters. Um, and then, as for the duration of hell, he cites Ibn Taymiyyah's argument um, and uh, in the in the in the way that it was presented by his Ibn Taymiyyah student Ibn Al Qayyim, or Ibn Qayyim Al Jawziyah, I should say. And uh, he, but he's cautious. He, he 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 makes it very clear that you know he's he, he ultimately uh, will leave this matter up to God. He will not attempt to resolve the matter. Uh, but you can see it, it's clear. It's evident that he supports. He's on the side. He leans toward the view that hell will one day come to an end. Well, great. Thanks for giving us that synopsis of the different thinkers. So a few of the issues you've talked about is this idea of the reached and the unreached. And you also mentioned these words in the Quran that could be translated as ages or forever or maybe even a long time. Could you tell us some of these other specific textual examples that have been debated and have become part of the arguments for the scholars that you studied? Yes. In fact, I think um, one of the best examples in modern discussion 
discussions, especially, is discussions of the term Islam. In the Quran, there are passages that make very clear that God only accepts Islam. You see this, for example, in Surah 3, verse 19, and Surah 3, verse 85, and Surah 5, verse 3. It's made abundantly clear that God only accepts Islam. So now the question becomes, what does Islam mean? In modern times, many take it for granted that it's referring to the religion that we all call Islam. But in fact, that seems to be a bit simplistic, because when you look at the term uh, and you look at how it was understood in that context, that is 7th century Arabia, uh, it appears that the, um, the uh, literal translation makes a lot more sense, and Islam literally means submission or surrender to God. Um, of course, after 9-11, uh, there were many who, uh, you know, we, we heard many people say Islam means peace, and that's technically accurate, but the primary definition is, in fact, submission or surrender to God. And um, with, when you look at the Quran, you see that there are various um, prophets who lived, of course, before the era of Muhammad, uh, prophets like Abraham and Joseph, who are called Muslims. Now, a Muslim literally is one who submits to God or one who surrenders to God. It's related to the term Islam. And so, um, you know, these terms, Islam and Muslim, we have to be very careful when we, when we translate these terms. And so that's, I think, a very good example of a term that is often contested and uh, I would argue misunderstood. Um, now, that said, um, there are, you know, one has to also be careful here because there are some who make the claim that um, that the Quran in no way demands belief in Muhammad. And in fact, here we have to also be careful because there are passages that um, seem to indicate that Islam entails some, uh, recognition of Muhammad's prophethood. Uh, for example, Surah 4, verse 115, and later verses 150 to 151. So, uh, but in any case, um, um, that's one example, the term Islam. Another example would be the term kafir, or kufr. Um, kafir, a kafir is, um, the way I define it, is unbeliever, and kufr is unbelief. But um, we have to be careful with this term as well, uh, because the term can mean many things, including ingratitude, concealment of the truth, and so on. And so, but these are terms that are also uh, misunderstood uh, or, over, or oversimplified at the very least. So you'll see translations of the Quran where you know you read that unbelievers or non-believers uh, will be damned, will be punished, and the term there is kafir, or kufar, or kafirun, and these terms uh, again they can mean more than one thing. So that's another example. Great. So you brought up a point which is translation, and I think you make a really excellent, compelling point throughout the book, is that you talk about translation as theology, and that people could consciously or unconsciously translate certain words to convey a certain agenda that they might have. And one thing that you do that really surprised me was that you connect Ibn Taymiyyah with contemporary expressions of American Islam. You do this tentatively, you don't say for 
for sure there's a connection, but you, I think, give some persuasive evidence. Could you say something a little bit about those two things? How about translationist theology and then about potential connections between Ibn Taymiyyah and American Islam and translation? Absolutely. Um, so it was actually through modern English translations of the Quran that I discovered a possible connection to Ibn Taymiyyah. And I, I don't forget, I don't recall exactly how I discovered, how I came across the translation of Mawlana Muhammad Ali. Uh, Mawlana Muhammad Ali was a South Asian uh, scholar who belonged to the Ahmadiyya. Uh, a group uh, that uh, begins in South Asia in the 19th century, uh, led by a man named Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, a man who uh, some claim um, cl- was, was claiming to be a, uh, a messenger of God. Uh, others would say, no, he was simply a, an important leader. But in any case, this is a movement that begins in South Asia in the 19th century. And um, one of their members was, again, Muhammad Ali, Mawlana Muhammad Ali. And what was interesting was, um, in his translation of the Qur'an, he states that hell is not everlasting. Uh, you see this in the, in the translation itself. Uh, he indicates this where he says, you know, um, the unbelievers will remain in hell for a long time. He doesn't say forever. But when he, when he refers to the believers, he says that they will remain in heaven forever. Um, and then actually in the introduction to his translation, he presents his argument for um, the salvation of all of humanity. And as I began to um, investigate and to look at his argument, I discovered um, some interesting parallels to Mia's argument. And they were, um, you know, what he was saying seemed to, much of it seemed to be coming certainly indirectly, at least indirectly, from Ibn Taymiyyah. And he, in fact, at the end, states that what he's saying here is not new, that there were uh, pre-modern scholars who held similar views. And he gives three examples. He says Ibn al-Arabi, Ibn Taymiyyah, and Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyyah. As, I, as, as I've mentioned before, Ibn al-Arabi does not speak of people leaving hell. He speaks of people enjoying hell. So I knew that the connection to Ibn al-Arabi was not, was not a strong one. But the connection to Ibn Taymiyyah and his student, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyyah, was, a strong, was, was pretty evident. So um, that's something that I noticed. And then um, later on, I, I noticed, I was reading some work, a work by um, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad of the Nation of Islam. And in that work, he um, makes the same point, that hell is not everlasting. And he states... And I, I forget if it's at the beginning or at the end. I want to say at the end of this work, um, he states that he recommends that people read the translation of two people. Uh, one is Yusuf Ali, and the other is Mawlana Muhammad Ali. Um, but it's clear that he's, he's more influenced by Mawlana Muhammad Ali when it comes to the issue of the afterlife. In fact, in some passages, he even um, is quoting him, um, or at least uh, uh, echoing what he's saying, almost verbatim in some passages. And, uh, and then it occurred to me also that, you know, he really seems to be taken by this Muhammad Ali. And, and it's interesting that of all the names he could have given to the boxer Cassius Clay, he chose the name Muhammad Ali. I mean, he clearly seemed to have been influenced by him. Mm-hmm. And so it occurred to me that, 
there seems to be a connection here, um, at the very least an indirect connection, between the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and Ibn Taymiyyah, of all people. Yeah, that is super interested me, and I imagine other people have that reaction too. So sort of related to this in particular, but also the book more generally, have you had discussions with these teachers you had mentioned from your childhood who had taught you that uh, hell was eternal and that non-Muslims would go to hell, et cetera, et cetera, since you've been involved in this research? Yes, um, to some extent. And um, I will say this, I, I have given public, a public lecture in, a, in, a, in an environment where um, much of the audience um, was, of the ori- was of the view that Islam is indeed an exclusivist religion. Um, and I can tell you that it was not, my lecture was not received so warmly <laughs> in, those, in that context. Um, you know, and it's not as if, uh, you know, they had any compelling counter-arguments to what I was saying. I mean, you really can't deny that someone like Al-Ghazali said what he said. I mean, right. it's right there. Um, and yet, there was this worry that this should not be made public because um, perhaps, uh, you know, people will, will misunderstand or, or what have you, will misunderstand the material or, or twist it or, or something along those lines. Um, but so, yeah, I, I have, and, and, I, and there was at least one teacher that, from my childhood with whom I discussed my book. And I can tell you that, you know, he, the smile on his face was quickly wiped away as I began to describe <laughs> each of the, you know, the chapters of the book. So. Um, yeah, it wasn't received so warmly. Hmm. Uh, so, so given that you've discussed the topic in audiences where it hasn't been, you know, received warmly, but also knowing that parts of the academic community have received it warmly, and in part that a lot of your arguments that you make in the book aren't so much controversial as they are based on things like you were saying that people might not like to be made public. So in, in light of all this, are there is there a particular thing that you hope your book accomplishes and sort of a message that it produces to the academic but also non-academic audience? Yeah, I mean... I would, I would just, at the very least, hope that we are, um, we have a better sense of um, the history of Islamic thought, and a better sense of how Muslim scholars approach this this very consequential topic. And you know, this is a topic, as I say in the book, that has profound implications, because on the one hand, it tells us about Islamic thought itself. Uh, it tells us about Muslim conceptions of God and so on, but it also has practical implications. You know, how you view the other affects how you interact with the other. Now, this, this could affect it in, in positive or negative ways. I mean, you know, you, you know, I've seen the claim, some claim that, you know, if you believe non-Muslims are going to hell, uh, you will be unusually nice with them and so on. Um, and I've seen the other claim, which is that you, you might not care so much for them because there's just fuel for hell. Um, so, you know, these, these, are, these are topics with real life implications, um, practical implications. So I would hope that at the very least we're, we're aware of what, what's out there, um, what different scholars have said about the topic, uh, and that we're not just rushing to assume things because of what we're seeing today. Right, and it's so easy to get one-dimensional views on things if we, you know, read Joe Bob's blog on the internet or get all of our information from a particular cable news outlet. So I think what you're saying is so important that we realize these things are really complicated and that we oftentimes are surprised when we start to learn about them in depth. 
absolutely. Uh, and, and you know, actually, uh, I've um, I've encountered people uh, online who have uh, who have dismissed my work, uh, and um, it's not as if. They again, not, it's not like they have any any, any counter arguments, or they're not necessarily um, referencing a treatise that I forgot to look at, for example. Instead, it's just that they're, this doesn't match their paradigm, it doesn't right. match what they're used to hearing. Uh, and uh, and here I'm talking about Muslims and non-Muslims who are who are perhaps critical of Islam. Right. Uh, so something else that I noticed already in your book is that you know as, as a fellow academic I, I read lots of academic things and I found your book to be particularly readable which I know isn't always the way we would we describe academic prose so do you I found that you incorporated storytelling and you wrote in a way that was smooth and you know it was just com- compelling I think from a reader's perspective is that something that you're conscious about when you write and trying to make your prose accessible and potentially even pleasant for the reader? Well, first of all, thank you, Elliot, for the kind words. Um, regarding the, the, the approach, you know, I, I think having um, studied at a public university and then having, you know, taught courses, numerous courses, from the, you know, very early on in my graduate studies, I had to teach, uh, you know, the my, my second semester as a graduate student, I had to, I had to start teaching. And um, what I, what I decided to, uh, at the outset was that this book had to appeal to, you know, my future students, not because I was going to assign the text and have them pay for it. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, but because, um, I, I want, I want, you know, I want many people to appreciate this topic. And this is something actually that, um, my dissertation committee, uh, stressed at my defense uh, during my defense, they said that, you know, the dissertation is fine, but you want you also want to make this um, appealing and you want to, um, you know, you want to allow non-specialists to have access to this material. And that's why I made it a point to include a glossary and to, um, explain what, you know, specialists would consider basic knowledge, basic, uh, you know, the basics, basically. Um, so in any case, the, uh, I, I was writing it for, you know, I was assuming that my students w- would be reading this book. And yeah. so I felt, I, felt, I felt it necessary to make it interesting. You know, when you're giving a lecture and you see your students in the back, um, you know, texting or something, you, you know that you're not, you're not interesting. <laughs> and so you, you, I try to find ways in my, you know, in my approach to teaching that um, would allow students to feel genuinely interested in the material. Well, I, th- I think if we, if we took texting as a sign that our lectures were boring, then perhaps we'd be doomed <laughs> since it's almost inevitable that somebody in the classroom or in a lecture hall won't be paying attention. But yep. re- related, related to this, even if you don't have students buy the book, do you, in, in the classes that you teach, do you assign chapters from the book? And if so, how do yeah. students react? Yeah, I, uh, I typically assign at the very least the introduction to my book uh, in my, uh, I believe it's my modern Muslim, yeah, my modern Muslim thought course. And um, I mean, so far, so good. I haven't really, you know, I, ha- I, I haven't really encountered any, um, it seems that it's helpful uh, on the whole. I think students find it helpful to kind of, um, to think of, you know, these different categories like exclusivists and inclusivists and so on. And um, so I, I think they find it interesting. Also, I think that they, you know, they may, often what I hear is, "Oh, I, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't know that this was going on. I didn't know that there were so many inclusivists historically, uh, or that there were universalists who maintained that hell would come to an end." I mean, these. I think often the response that I that I see 
is the response that I myself had uh, as a student learning about these things. Great. Well, I can tell you with, without simply trying to flatter you that I, I plan on assigning uh, at least a chapter from your book in my courses on Islam this fall. So you can actually, you can check up on me and make sure, <laughs> make sure that I have, because I do plan on it. So we've taken up a bit of your time already. Uh, before we conclude, I was hoping you could tell us what you're working on next, or if there are some particularly exciting projects that you have planned, if you could tell us a little bit about them. Sure. You know, now that I've completed the these two books, uh, the my 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 book, Islam and the Fate of Others, and then the edited volume, uh, Between Heaven and Hell, I, I'm now sort of uh, uh, finishing up various projects that are overdue. So I'm finishing various book reviews and so on. Uh, but I'd like to um, be, I'd like to look at some other uh, topics that I consider compelling and interesting. For one thing, I, I'd like to. Um, do some research on Muslim scholarly discussions uh, of the fate of uh, children, deceased children, because I find that this is a topic that's also quite compelling and has been the subject of much debate historically. And I feel that there's, there's more that could be, that could, could be done on this topic. And then also I'd like to, um, I'm beginning to do some research on the topic of uh, warfare. Um, so looking at negative interactions in this life, and uh, I'm interested in the rules of warfare, and this is something that I'm just beginning to explore. It's, of course, a, a, a huge topic uh, and would require uh, many, many years of research, but it's something that I find to be quite compelling and quite interesting, and I'm beginning to sort of head in that direction, um, but ultimately, we'll find out. I, I think we'll, uh, this is the year of sort of exploring my options and thinking about where I want to go from there. Great. Well, thank you so much, Mohammed. It's been a pleasure chatting with you about your book, and I, I hope that we can continue to look forward to your publications. Thank you, Elliot. It's been a pleasure. That was my conversation with Mohammed Khalil, professor of religious studies at Michigan State University, about his wonderful book, Islam and the Fate of Others, The Salvation Question published by Oxford University Press 2012. Thank you for listening.